Jason Ritchie joins me on episode 93 and on episode 94. In part one, Jason tells us how he started out in a punk band with his bandmate suggesting he take up the harmonica. Of course, he took to it quickly to become quite possibly the leading diatonic harmonica player of his generation. After initially developing his blues playing via the classic players, Jason moved to Memphis and developed his signature fast licks under the guidance of Pat Ramsey. Then, after getting into jazz and a brief flirtation with the saxophone, he started playing overblows inspired by Howard Levy and the more blues-based approach of Adam Gussell. Jason moved from Memphis for stints in various places, including Florida and jail, before settling in Nashville where he really made his presence known with his band Jason Ritchie and New Blood. This podcast is sponsored by Zydel Harmonicas. Visit the oldest harmonica factory in the world at www.zydel1847.com or on Facebook or Instagram at Zydel Harmonicas. Hello, Jason Ritchie, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Neil. It's a pleasure. Great to get you on. Something that I've wanted to do for some time, of course. So this is episode 93, and I understand the number 93 has got some significance for you. You've got it tattooed on your neck, and you also have some social media links ending in 93. So uh, what's with the number 93? It's like old occult numerology from uh, a type of numerology called gematria or gematria. The words, the Greek words love and will add up to 93. And it goes back to an old uh, Aleister Crowley quote. You know, love is the law, love under will, right? And that, so uh, that was stuff I was into for a long, long time. And I'm into different stuff now. I've evolved, I think. <laughs> to something a little more simple. <laughs> but yeah, I'm stuck with the 93 <laughs> on my on my neck. And the tattoo artist told me, he goes, you know, he goes, if after I do this, he goes, for the rest of your life, every single day, somebody's going to ask what that means. Are you ready for it? <laughs> and I, I was like, yeah, I'm ready. And I, you know, I, of course, I, I wasn't really ready. <laughs> Well, it could be a lot worse than a number nine three on your neck. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I could have done something worse. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so yeah, we'll get into that uh, your your cult influence on on your uh, lyric writing later. Yeah. So you were born in 1974, a year after myself. So um, does that mean you're not the hot young thing anymore? That definitely means I'm not the hot young thing. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So you're you're almost at the uh, the ripe old age of fifty, which I reached myself earlier this year. So it's great. Congratulations. So you were born in Maine, in Portland, Maine. That's right, the epicenter of the blues, Portland, Maine. And um, playing originally, you joined a punk band when you were sort of fourteen. Yeah, that's what how you first got into music. Yep. I understand you were the singer in the band, and uh, the kind of harmonica was suggested by them that you take it up. It wasn't something you chose yourself. That is factual. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, well, how did you develop that relationship with the harmonica? Did you kind of quickly bond with it and say, yeah, this is for me? Or um, 
Yeah, I mean, I had already been playing guitar, but they didn't want me to play guitar in the band, and uh, I wasn't good enough to play guitar in the band, so uh, even in a punk band. But my guitar teacher also played harmonica, so one day I was going up the stairs, and I heard him playing, and I was like, hey, can we do that like this week or next week or something? And then, yeah, I just right away took to it a little better than guitar. And uh, I felt like I could emote better. Guitar was always a vehicle for songwriting for me. And it still is, right? Like it was never like how I wanted to express myself musically. But I just wanted to sing and scream and strum it, you know, at parties and stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So when you were playing harmonica in a a punk band, did you, you know, how did the harmonica fit into that music? Not well. Yeah. Yeah, it was a novelty, you know. Yeah. Like when Battle of the Bands, you know, the, the critique would say, love the harmonica. <laughs> Surprised by the harmonica. From there, you, you got into playing, you know, the usual kind of traditional blues harmonica stuff. That's how you initially learned. That's true. Uh, in, in New England, where I grew up, and later when I went to college in Boise, I was around a lot of mostly older men, um, some women, that uh, were very, very serious about knowing the history of this music. <clears throat> in particular, the early chess recordings and chess recordings in general, but but also just all the Slim Harpo and 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 uh, and Cotton and Little Walter and T Bone Walker and Freddie King and BB King and all the in Albert King and all of that. It was all a prerequisite. Albert Collins growing up in New England uh, with Ronnie Earl's influence coming out of Boston. And uh, bands like Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones, Sugar Ray Norsha, and, and Room Full of Blues. There was a tremendous focus and influence on on all of those early artists. Magic Sam is one I forgot to mention, but a lot of that stuff was heavy duty, Portnoy being not far away, all of that stuff, all those people were very, very vocal to me as a young guy about, look, this is what you listen to, and that's it. Well, you know, it's a good grounding, of course, to get all the, uh, the rudimentaries of the blues harmonica down, yeah. I think so. I wouldn't change a thing. And then I understand your mother was quite into blues as well, and she took you to blues concerts, and, you know, she, she got you that grounding as well. Is that around Boston too? It was in Maine, Yeah. Yeah, I started traveling to Boston when I got my driver's license. But but yeah, but but she brought me to my first like four or five blues shows in Maine. It was Cotton, Muscle White, Buckwheat Zydeco from down here in New Orleans and uh oh a couple of others, you know. And so, you know, what age did you start getting really seriously into the harmonica? I would say that I was starting to get serious about it when I was 17 or 18, where I started to play harmonica at parties instead of guitar mostly, just like little hippie parties. And I started studying, you know, trying to play like Big Walter on certain songs and Little Walter on others. And Alan Wilson was an early influence, Butterfield. 
And then right around the time that I was about 19 or 20, music was competing for time for with college. So I was, I was employed already, right? Like, which was not a decision, you know, it just started happening. I started getting gigs. I would go to jams and bands would hear me and then I would get hired. And then I was out late at night and I wasn't studying. And this was happening more and more and more and more. And this was in, you know, Idaho, (laughs) which is the middle of nowhere in the United States. But incidentally, that's where John Namath was at the time too. He was born there. And uh, we we kind of came up together in that scene. And uh, anyway, I uh, I moved I moved to Memphis, and that I, that was in '95. Uh, so I would say that was the year that things became really really serious because I I made a decision to relocate, quit college, get a regular job waiting tables, follow Pat Ramsey. Uh, I won contests right away. Like as soon as I got down there, I started doing great, you know, musically, not personally, but, uh, you know, I was doing well. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. 95, I would say, was the big jumping off point. You went down there specifically to to study with Pat Ramsey, did you? Or did you just meet him when you were down there? I was passing through one time on my way home from Idaho to Maine driving decided to go down to see what Beale Street was like because I had heard about it. And so I just stopped in randomly. It was a Tuesday night. I heard Billy Gibson, the harmonica player, playing. And I walked into the club. I wasn't old enough to be in there. I didn't get carded which was good. Billy was like my age, which at that time was really rare. And really, if you look back at that time period, there was really Billy, Dennis Grundling, and me, and John Namath. And, uh, you know, maybe there were a couple others that didn't really make it. You know what? The name Rob Stone comes to mind too. So there was, but anyway, at any rate, there was only a handful of us young guys. So I talked to Billy and I just told him, I said, you sound great. And I love that number. And I've never heard anybody do that live. I, Kim Wilson had just covered it on uh, Tiger Man. He said, well, if you think I'm good, well, wait till you hear the next guy. And that was Pat Rams. So when Pat got down, I went and spoke to him and I told him, I said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to landscape and I'm going to get enough money and I'm just going to move back here and come to every single gig that you do. Uh And that's exactly what I did. So Pat Ramsey, the influence was, you know, his approach to you, you know, to playing faster licks, you know, was that what really attracted you? Was that style attracted you at that stage? Yeah, I wouldn't say it was so much the speed, but the note choice combined with the speed. Because, I mean, obviously, coming up in my generation, I had heard John Popper, and I had heard Sugar Blue, and and I had even heard Howard Levy. It was the choice of blue notes. So, 
you know, for the musicians out there that are listening, I'm talking about flat thirds, flat sevens, and flat fifths. So in cross harp, that would be the three draw half step bend sequentially, two draw double bend, and the four draw bend. So mixing in those things into fast playing hadn't really been done at that level other than Howard, but Howard hadn't done it in such a blues way. It was a revelation. And as Jack Nicholson said to Dennis Hopper, it was a devastating shock to my antiquated system. You know, and uh, so hearing somebody play fast, which I was told by my heroes, was definitely something you don't do. You know, uh, I was told very specifically by very famous established harmonica players that are mostly still with us today, don't do that. But I don't think they had heard Pat. And I think if they had, they'd have been scared. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure, yeah. And so Pat played with Johnny Winterman. Is that who you were seeing him play with down there? Nope. That was in the 70s. And he was still doing some gigs, but he was playing under his own name. He was still doing a few gigs, uh, maybe uh, once every couple of years with Johnny Winter. But uh, Johnny Winter was uh, using... uh, different harmonica players because his management was choosing the harmonica players. And that's my understanding anyway. I, I could be wrong. And including yeah. your good self later on when you appeared on one of his albums. I was very, very privileged to be part of that. And if it hadn't have been for Pat, there's no way that, that Johnny Winter would have picked me. Yeah, and that's the album which which won a Grammy. You played on, on one of the songs on that, on that album. Yeah. Some, some big names in that, wasn't there? Uh, Eric Clapton and Cody. Did you get to meet or the other musicians, or were you sort of recording uh, in your own, uh, you know, separately to those? When I recorded the record, actually, everything was scratch except for me. So uh, the harmonica was the only thing that remained on the track. So it was scratch vocals from another artist, not Johnny Winter. Scratch guitar from another artist, not Johnny Winter. Scratch drums and scratch bass from musicians that were not on that didn't end up making it on the record. So it was very, very difficult to play over it because there was zero inspiration and the scratch tracks were uh, marginal. And that, so, yeah, so Johnny Winter was added afterwards and your harmonica was... That's right, that. right. I was the the first thing that remained on that track. I did get to hang out with Johnny Winter that day yeah. and that, that was it. I didn't get to meet any of the other cats. Well, that's a good insight to a Grammy Award winning record and how they put it together anyway. <laughs> it's very different than people think often. You know, sometimes it's what you think. You know, you're in a room with all your heroes, but but other times, most of the time, it's fairly lackluster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Surprisingly difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll talk a bit more about fast playing. And we don't want to dwell too much on it because you certainly don't just do fast playing, but obviously you're known for that, you know, very soulful as well, very tasteful and, and all that great stuff as well. But Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so when you started learning with Pat, did you, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've read about how you, you know, you practice scales and patterns and you, you would do that, obviously, like you say, with blue notes rather than sort of major scales and pentatonic scales. Obviously, that's something specific you were learning. Were you learning, you know, particular sort of rhythms like, you know, playing 16th notes and that sort of thing? You know, you know, how did you approach the, the fast playing? Because it is something that a lot of people hear it and think, wow, I want to be able to do that too. Yeah. Yeah. When I came to meet pat and stuff pat wasn't much different than the old blues guys meaning 
that he didn't or wouldn't say what he was doing. I can I can tell you he was certainly not very aware of things like scales and certainly not arpeggios and those types of things. And uh, he would balk if you brought up such names. And so I was sort of the same. So what I would do is I would go and listen to Pat and then go home and try to play what I heard that evening and from memory. And uh, finally, Pat put out a record, which was the first record under his own name called It's About Time. And once the record came out, I could then pause and play and rewind. They were these little, I would say some of them are breathing patterns and some of them are not, but a lot of. And a lot of like really methodical, like. lot of that kind of stuff so it's just really kind of mechanical way of moving around the harp all that kind of stuff that's very much like the solo that you play on delta nova Oh, yeah. I mean, Pat's influences are that's one year into me knowing him. It's already seeping in. I would say that still, if there is a skeletal influence that is X-rayable in my playing, it's Pat. <laughs> I love him so much. I miss him terribly, Neil. I really do. I, As a big brother or really, really a father figure. There are many, many days when I wish I could call him up. And the the love that I have for Pat is so powerful that it's probably stopped me from seeking out new older male role role models, Mm -hmm. which is something I'm trying to change Yeah, because it's important for me. I I didn't grow up with much of a, a male role model. My father wasn't very present in my life. It's always important for me to have older men in my life that have seen more than I have, who I can call when I'm all worked up, who can tell me to calm down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And we all need those wise heads. Yeah. So, so great. So you, as you say, you, you released that, uh, that album down at the Duke a year after you, you met Pat. Yeah. And so that was early on. And you also released an album before that, which is, which is called Jason Ritchie. Right. The first album. So these, these are both down in, in Memphis. Yeah. And um, yeah. Is your Jason Ritchie album available? I couldn't actually find that. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of glad they're hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, you know, truth be told, I think I was prematurely recorded. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, I can make a comment on that 
in the current state of the music. I, I am glad that independent, you know, the internet and uh, and the ability to press CDs and make CDs is available to all artists. And we've certainly seen some amazing talent come out of that. However, on the other hand, I think there's something to be said for some sort of label gatekeeping and an artist sort of proving themselves for a time period before getting recorded. Now, I'm, I'm not speaking about other people. I'm talking about for my own good. Mm-hmm. It might have been nice if my debut album had really made up an impact. You know, if we think back like somebody like William Clark, what we see is a guy who worked in a steel mill from my understanding for most of his life and then was like, you know, beyond qualified to record when he did, had there been the ability to self-produce, self-publish unquote, so to speak, I think we might've heard some substandard William Clark, right. Or some, let's just say unrealized. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, I think that's the case with many of my early recordings. They were put together independently. Where they weren't through a record level. You signed later to a to a more major record level. Yeah, that's right. But but again, I mean, down at the Duke, I think there's some great playing on there. Myself, again, Delta Dips, another one I really love on that album. So uh, I wouldn't knock that early playing too much. <laughs> No, and I think I learned from the process too quite a bit. Like, you know, listening, having to listen back to your own music, it's like can be painful in a good way, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, one thing I just wanted to, to jump back to is that I believe you almost took up the saxophone instead of the harmonica. What stage was this? That was in 98. So mm. I, uh, was just getting out of jail. Uh, it was like a, uh, it wasn't really a jail. It was like a, a, a mandatory rehab where, you know, where the doors were locked. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could, you could leave actually, you could walk out of there, but uh, there would immediately be a warrant issued for your arrest. Okay. So you're, you're doing rehab time instead of, of, of jail time. And then there's a catch with that, too. If you failed in there or left, you would then serve your full sentence. So I was staring down 12 years and the the rules were very, very strict. So it was hard to make it through there. So I had made it through nine months of there into a one year and a day sentence, followed by, you know, five or six years of probation after that and was moved to a work release program. When I got to the work release program, I had a uh, boombox that was given back to me that was checked with my stuff prior to uh, me being incarcerated. For the nine months that I was incarcerated, I didn't hear music or was not allowed to play harmonica. They did briefly give me the harmonica back to do a show for the governor, uh, along with some other guys who did like poetry and singing and stuff. And uh, I was allowed to practice like an hour a week for that show for like four weeks leading up to it. But for for a whole year, I didn't hear or play any music, no TV commercials, no radio, nothing. And uh, I think that was a good cleansing for me and something that made me appreciate music better for the rest of my life to have it taken away. I yeah. think we take it for granted. And I've, I don't think I've ever 
taken music for granted since then. So, so when I got to the work release program, I had this boom box that had been sitting in storage for nine months. It was infested with cockroaches, by the way. Cockroaches love electronics. They like to get in there and hang out. So I'd be listening to it and they'd come out and crawl down the headphones and mm-hmm. be on my face and stuff. That's how much I was into the music. <laughs> and so anyway, uh, there was a radio show that came on from midnight until six in the morning. I had to be to work at like eight or nine in the morning waiting tables. The show was called China's Jazz and Blues Hour or no, it's just show because it would go from midnight until six in the morning. So it certainly wasn't an hour. But there was this old DJ, China Valles, who had been around for, I think, 40 years at that time. He's since passed away. And I was exposed to Billie Holiday and Charlie Parker and uh, and Ben Webster and Duke Ellington and Sarah Vaughn and, uh, you know, Lester Young and uh, to- Toots Thielman's harmonica players. And mm-hmm. uh, I fell in love with this thing they called jazz. And in a way that, you know, it was reluctant. At first, it was the closest thing to the blues. And then later it became, well, gosh, this if this is not the coolest stuff I've ever heard. So I really wanted to be able to play that music and the diatonic, limited, you know, the C harmonica or B flat harmonica, whatever, even with the bends down bottom, it wasn't going to accomplish it. I couldn't even play blue monk or simple standard tunes that displayed any form of chromaticism. So I became disillusioned with the harmonica. Mm -hmm. I started experimenting with overblows right around that time, trying to get it. I think blue monk was the first number I was after. And then I got a saxophone and I got into that briefly. But then I heard UFO Tofu by Howard Levy. And that's when I decided to get serious about the overblows and not double on harmonica or and have sax be my primary instrument, but but just go after harmonica 100%. Yeah. I sold the saxophone later for gas money from a gig from in Nebraska to try to get to Colorado. So there's a lot of comparisons made between the saxophone and harmonica. You know, a lot of harmonica plays kind of want to say they want to sound like a saxophone right so is that something you were aiming for you know playing jazzy lines or no i i think i was just aiming for the melodies i didn't care what instrument played it whether it was stefan grappelli on violin or or west montgomery on guitar or anything like that and i hear a lot of harmonica players say oh i listen to saxophone players and then they play <laughs> right and it's like who <laughs> who did you listen to <laughs> yeah because that doesn't sound like a harmonica lick to me you know <laughs> i think it's a it's a nice thing to say i i think it doesn't matter what instrument it's it comes down to arpeggios and getting inside of chords and scales too but like you know i think the 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 blues player that i've heard that sounds the most like a saxophone is probably dennis grunley 
and and also some others, uh, Carlos Del Junco, people that have played chromatically either by using different positions or overblows, but amplifying it. I think when we amplify it, we get more of that sax kind of sound. But, I mean, it's arguable. I mean, I think, you know, on chromatic and stuff, we hear like William Clark on The Boss uh, starting to sound like a B3. And, you know, things like that, you know, so I don't know. I don't know about all that. It's a harmonica. <laughs> yeah. Good. Great news that you focus on the harmonica for all of those harmonica fans, of course. God bless you all. <laughs> yeah. So going back to, you know, going on to the overblows topic then. So you see, you mentioned Howard Lever there, the, you know, yeah. the, 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 the king of the overblows. But I know Adam Gusso was a big influence on you early on. I think was it your, your, what you first heard the overblows being used more in a blues context. Than, uh, right. Uh, That's where I got interested initially, but like, I just didn't think I could do it. And it, and I didn't have the motivation to do it until I heard China's Jazz and Blues show. And that because it took a lot of, you know, you have to I think you have to really, really want those notes to get into overblowing. Like I, I actually think that's more important than the physical technique. I think hearing them and knowing where they're not and and really sort of wishing that you could play that or or you know i would say needing needing to play it for the for the purpose of emotional self-expression mm-hmm. you know that's really what i think it takes to do it i i i encounter a lot of students that want to learn overblows and it, it's almost like they want a karate belt like they want to be able to say i'm an overblower yeah. and the ones that seem to take to it really really well are the ones that have a, a love of music that needs that to happen. And uh, when they when they have an emotional connection with a major seven and they need that in cross harp, that's when you learn how to do it, I think. You know, the, the exception to that, I think, is children that are learning harmonica that don't know and nobody has told them that overblows are hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. They seem to learn it pretty quick, whether they want it or not. Yeah. So, I mean, so your use of overblows, I mean, you know, some people will say that overblows, the sound of them, you know, kind of jumps out as being differently. I certainly don't hear that with you and, and some of the other good overblow players that you've mentioned already. So, I mean, how much percentage wise would you say you're using overblows if you could put it in that way? Oh, gosh. I, I don't know, Neil. I, I, I don't think, I mean, I can certainly play without them without thinking about it, if I'm in a genre of music. Like, if I'm in Little Walter mode, like, sometimes, well, frequently, I have to play traditional blues, and, and I want to. I love I love it. And so if I'm like, like recently, I played with Bob Margolin and uh, John Primer, and and I fill in for Dennis occasionally with Nick Moss when, when Dennis can't make a tour or something. You know, in those kind of contexts, I don't think of overblowing. And now every now and then I hear one, you know, before it happens, like, you know, I'm, I'm playing and I hear the, the lick I want to hit 
and I'll allow it in. You know what I mean? Because I think it's necessary because I, it feels right. But mostly when I play in those types of contexts, I don't, I, I just don't think about them. I pretend they're not there sort of. I, I don't know how I do it, but I think it's just from listening to all that little Walter stuff. Like, for example, when I listen to Kim Wilson or Gary Primich or any of my favorite traditional harmonica players that are alive today, like Steve Mariner. Right. I, I don't ever think, well, boy, they would sound better with overblows. It never occurs to me. But when I'm playing by myself or when I'm just playing music in general, particularly New Orleans music, I also don't think about them when I hit them. I just I see it as any other note on the harmonica. Mostly I, I sometimes still get nervous about the seven overdraw or the nine overdraw in third position. You know, I might use that. And, uh, I, I still get nervous about them coming up. And, uh, but mostly I hit them, <laughs> but yeah, I don't think about it. When I pick up a harmonica, they're just going to come out unless I've made a decision ahead of time that I just want to play like in, a, in an old way. I mean, that's what we want, right? We want it all to be natural and to come out without thinking about it too much, right? I mean, that's when it's yeah. good. Yeah. So, but, but, but yeah. And like, like I knew right away, like I was never going to have the, the background musical background that that Howard had coming into it and I was a person that was scared of theory and scared of math and scared of arpeggios and chords and leading tones and diminished things and all these types of words they scared me and I didn't like them and uh initially I I tended to just try to make them really sound good I real I wanted to bend them So these little wavers. So I'm kind of, you know, adjusting the pitch in and out of being in tune, yeah. going sharp and flat and, and on pitch. And I, I noticed that they, they could be very effective for blues playing. Mm -hmm. And I really couldn't tell the difference between like a six draw bend tonally and a six overblow. Really sounded pretty similar to me. What about when you were, you know, going back a little bit to the sort of fast playing, when you were practicing the fast licks, we, uh, I take it you were practicing these kind of chromatic runs, including the overblows as part of those. Yeah, definitely. It, it wasn't long after I learned how to set up a harmonica. You know, that was key, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, you know, up and I would say up until like around 2011 or 2012 when a honer and Suzuki and, and started making really good harmonicas because prior to that, 
you'd have to work on them a lot. So once I started working on them and adjusting the action or, or offset as harmonica players call it, uh, you know, the read offset that, that was when I was able to start playing not only fast, but, but bending them as well. And, uh, and putting them in seamlessly and, and practicing scale techniques. Right. And all that kind of, yeah. And all of that different stuff, you know. But but if someone, you know, he wants to emulate your sound, and obviously they can also have lessons with you, we'll get onto that later, so you can really tell them what to do. But if someone who wants to emulate your sound, would you say they can't do that without doing overblows? Um, I, I would say that you could get pretty close by, you know, to some of it by just studying Pat. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're not going to get the, the real, the like modern blues and jazz influence that I have in my playing without that. But rhythmically, you can certainly get some of my styles because there's places rhythmically where I, I definitely have, I think I differ from Pat quite a bit. I think that was the influence of bebop, you know, where Pat would play. And I would. Yeah, I, and that just like, uh, it wasn't a decision. It just sunk in. Just from listening to hundreds of thousands of hours of Charlie Parker, you know, just just loving the way, not because I wanted to learn how to play like Charlie Parker, just because I loved how happy it made me and sad at the same time. Like it was, it's just the most remarkable musician I'd ever heard still to this day. Well, I mean, he's certainly got the reputation about being the best improviser ever, right? So, uh, I it was so beautiful, yeah, and joyful, joyful, very joyful. Yeah, I've spent my time listening to uh, Mr. Parker as well. Good. <laughs> Did you learn from the Charlie Parker Omni book? No, I can't. I still can't read music. Right. Okay. Right. And so, going back to your uh, your timeline, so as you say, you, you you left Memphis and went to Florida. Uh, as you say, you spent some time in your rehab center, and then you came out of Florida, and then you, you were touring a lot, playing a lot. You kind of learning the trade there as well, yeah. You missed one thing. I yeah. I left Memphis. I went and played with Junior Kimbrough, R.L. Burnside, and their kids. Then I went to Jackson, Mississippi, which is where I got in trouble. I went to rehab in Florida. Got out of Florida. I spent. I got out of jail, spent three years playing with a band called the Knuckle Busters down in Florida, and also Keith Brown, who is in France now. He's like a Keb Mo kind of guy, mm -hmm. acoustic guy. And I was in a little trio with him, uh, a house band at a famous club that's since gone called the Bamboo Room. And then I relocated briefly to North Carolina, where I worked at a treatment center as a detox clinician. And then I got the job with Big Al. Which put me in Nashville, where I remained for 10 years, 11, 10 or 11 years. Yeah. And so I think is it in 2002 you formed the band with New Blood. Um, uh, maybe then, maybe a little er earlier. Yeah. yeah. Where were we based then? 
Nashville. I stayed in Nashville after I left Big Al. Great. And so I've got it here that you didn't release an album between Down at the Duke and then your first album with uh, with New Blood, I think, in 2001. Is that right? You had a bit of a gap between releasing albums then? Yeah. I mean, I was in rough shape, you know. Yeah. You were busy other things. Okay, great. So then you formed New Blood, which you had a great successful time with. You know, you released a lot of albums with that. toured i think you toured like 300 days a year i've read for 10 years that's right you know what was that like (laughs) um i mean the beginning of it i think was the time of my life some of the happiest times i've ever had were back before the band was popular at all and we were just kind of you know a bunch of kids in a in a ford econo line with dreams and sharing hotel rooms and Sometimes no hotel rooms and oftentimes no hotel rooms. And, you know, we would camp and sleep on pool tables or at people's houses. And I think we were young and naive and it was still a lot of fun and really exciting. Then, you know, uh, life happens. Our, our drummer got deported and uh, from Argentina and uh, we got signed to a record label and got on a bigger booking agency. And there was now money involved in BMI royalties and songwriting credit and festivals. And I think uh, as wonderful as that was, and it's a necessary part of evolution, the naivety was starting to go away and it became a job and it became serious and there were fights and creative differences and girlfriends and boyfriends coming into the mix and changing around dynamics. And, uh, and then, of course, me and mental illness and uh, addiction later resurfacing after 12 years sober, you know, finding myself in 2010 back on drugs. Yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing 10 years, Neil, and uh, we had a lot of fun. And I think that's when I really made my name. And so I wouldn't change a thing. It was a, a wonderful, wonderful time period. I have so much affection for all of the musicians that played in that band, uh, but namely Todd Edmonds, Sean Starsky, those two, the guitar and bass player. We had lots of drummers. Yeah, and you created some great music as well. And the first album I ever heard you was on the the Blood on the Road album, which was a really great album. Some very memorable songs on there, such as My Head's a Bad Neighborhood. uh, Definitely (laughs) brings to mind. That whole album was recorded in six hours. Really? Yeah, it's a great album, that one. Love that one, yeah. So, you know, so what about some of those lyrics on there? Um, obviously drawing on some of your personal experiences, I'm sure. Yeah, well, my head is a sick and twisted place. Well, my head, well, my head is a dangerous place, baby. Cause if I think about my life, all my little troubles in my style, it all feels like one big waste, let me tell you. You write most of the lyrics? Yeah, I've always been into writing lyrics. I think I've, you know, in some ways the harmonica is kind of overshadowed, you know, that that's been the thing that's meant a lot to me on every record is making sure that I write stuff that means something to me. I was always a 
fan of important lyricists and tried to, I thought a lot about music from the very beginning. It was always lyrics. And my wife is the same way, too much so, really. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Well, I mean, as you say, the harmonica overshadows it, but definitely the full package is, you know, is the band and the sounds that you're creating. The lyrics are a big part of it. You know, they're often quite dark and, you know, it's definitely a, a modern take on blues, right? And it's not all blues that you play, but that's obviously really important to you. Yeah, I, I think I, being a white person and, you know, having lived with Junior and, and RL and, and, and spent a lot, a lot of time immersed in black culture to the point where there were periods of time, sometimes as long as six or seven months where I didn't even see another white person or, or the only other white person I saw was Eric Deaton, you know, who is now with that, the black keys and, uh, and another band called Afro Sippy, but he was really the only other white person I saw, but I think it became very apparent to me being with those guys that it was really important to be yourself you, you know, I, we weren't going to be them. And that was really, really clear, like living in, in that environment. And I think there's a lot of white people that write songs or, or sing songs that were written by black people that don't really understand what they're singing about. And also on a lighter note, I think some of the lyrics are just antiquated. Like I, I don't want to be on stage saying, I bought my baby a brand new choo-choo toy, dot, 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 dot. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I just, it's just not who I am and what I'm going to say when I get up there. And I think that if more modern blues musicians, both black and white, wrote better lyrics, that I think that this music would speak to a younger generation. Yeah, and you're pretty successful in New Blood, right? You know, you were headlining at festivals. and you, So I take it that was part of it, that you weren't just a kind of old, you know, you weren't emulating kind of old style blues. You were, it was new, modern, you were saying something. Right. Back then, everything was mostly, there was only a few modern artists and they were really rocky. They weren't, like, we were rocky too. We had a rock influence, but we also had a heavy duty jazz influence too. Mm. And I would say punk too. You know, so like there was that, right? And, uh, but there were, I mean, we were listening to a lot of Sun Ra and, uh, and also New Orleans funk and a lot of that kind of stuff, you know, so. An album you did with, uh, with New Blood is, is done with the devil, which is, uh, inspired by your interest in the occult. So, so again, some, uh, some lyrics about there. This won the, uh, Blues Music yeah. Award for Best Blues Rock Album in, uh, in it, it was nominated. It didn't win, but thank you. We'll say, we'll say yeah. it what. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, the song on there is, is uh, you know, going back to the to the jazz uh, influences, you Afro Blues is on there, and you, you quote my favorite things in, in your diatonic. Yeah. And then we did Sun Ra's Enlightenment, too.
and then you do uh, a song on, on Down That Road, which is Harmonica Caprice Number 1, which is you know obviously pointing towards the kind of classical music influence. So did you have any sort of classical music influence? You say you didn't really read music. Where did that come from? Yeah, a fascination with the violin. Yeah. So I fell in love with violin music. During that time period, I took a kind of a hiatus from jazz and just just for my own pleasure, like it's important for me to listen to music that I don't think about how would I do it, right? Like it's, you know, I think that the people that don't play music have a sort of wonderful childlike uh, ability to hear things without thinking about what are they doing or how would I interpret this or could I do this or how long would it take me to learn how to do this or how come I can't learn how to do this? But I, 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 right, is the the thought process. So, I mean, when I initially started listening to jazz, it was just for pure joy of loving it. And then that that ego which is a necessary thing. And I'm glad it, it, it came in, but that, you know, could I do this started coming in? Like, I love it so much. Can I do it? So classical music was originally an escape from that constant, you know, study mode of, it was like, this is music I can listen to without thinking about how can I do it? And so, you know, I think I, I had seen a documentary about this uh, New York violinist named Nadja Sonnenberg called Speaking in Strings. And she was sort of like me. She was kind of outspoken and a little crass and not really liked, but more than tolerated, like booked everywhere in the classical music world. And I related to her personally. And then I just started kind of falling in love with the violin because like when they would bow the violin, like when a really good classical violinist is bowing in a certain way, it doesn't sound like there's a bow at all. It sounds like the sound is coming out of nowhere. There's no vibration. It's just, it's almost like a theremin, you know? And I, I fell in love with that. And then of course, later the double stops and the actual bowing sounds of it. But then from her, I traced back to Oistrock and Heifetz and started listening to more, you know, uh, established violinists. And then that led me into like Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff, Bach. And then my uh, very favorite of the romantic period composers, Sibelius. So when I, I, when I finally discovered Opus 47 in D minor, Sibelius's violin concerto, by that point I was lost in it and it was irreconcilable. So then next thing you know, Paganini, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where you're going to go if you're a violin nut. Mm -hmm. And so I started listening to the Caprices. were solo violin pieces you know later of course in the beginning they they were you were not allowed to play them without a piano or a harpsichord because they were considered too self-indulgent sort of 
by many. And they were they sounded too much like exercises to people. They thought they were cold and reptilian. And I could certainly see how people would think that, but the the amount of soul and sa- that goes into it just in sacrifice alone, the ability to play that, I think negates any sterile or coldness that one would think if you just listen to the music without thinking about, oh, is this too many notes or does it sound like an exercise? If you just listen to it and stop with that voice in your head that's making you judge it, you know, usually out of fear, I find that voice comes into play. Fear and anger are the predominant emotions that come in judging things uh, as good or bad. You know, I think it's important for people to listen to music as much in the moment as possible. I think I, you know, I'm a fan of free jazz as well. And uh, I think that's a music that many people find unlistenable. And what I enjoy most about it is it forces me to stay in the moment. There's no predicting what's going to happen next, either harmonically or melodically or rhythmically. And I, I enjoy that unpredictability. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's interesting you should mention the violin. So during the pandemic, I started learning to play the violin, and I, I went for I've been going for violin lessons. It's hard. <laughs> it's really, really hard. <laughs> really, really, really hard. I, I yeah. got one hanging on the wall, Neil. <laughs> But I mean, I don't do it like, I mean, I've I done it enough to pass my grade. Um, I did a grade three, and but I don't practice it like loads. So I don't really practice it enough to get really good at it. But it's like, it's so hard. Yeah, it's so hard. But but yeah, I mean, it's interesting that someone like you, and I'm, you know, probably surprising to harmonica players that, you know, you would draw those influences and, you know, you know people might expect you'd be a full-on harmonica nut, right? But it's great to hear that you have those other influences too. They're important. Yeah, yeah I think the, uh, the greatest thing to come out of that was I started, I started realizing what arpeggios were. Well, from from listening to Paganini. So when you did your harmonica caprice, was that something that you wrote down or did you sort of just come up with, come up with it by ear? I was just practicing minor triads and then I and then not accidentally, then I just tried blowing in third position, four draw, five draw, six draw. Then I just started blowing four blow, five blow, six blow. And then that, you know, that contrast between the minor triad and then the major triad was emotionally stimulating. So then I just found the B flat minor triad after that and then the other one. And that's how it got written. So you also do, uh, on your latest album, which we'll, we'll get onto a little bit later, but I just mentioned now on St. James Infirmary, you sort of go into a classical uh, thing at the yeah. end of that for quite a long time. So you know, it's still something you're interested in, yeah? And- Yeah, I'm going to keep recording Harmonica Caprice on every record because it's growing. Like, uh, I never stop working on it. It's it's not written yet. It's just being, it's an exercise. Like right now, like when I record it again, there'll be more octaves. Like... You know, so like going all the way up and stuff like... Yeah. <laughs> 
and oh man, I'm messing up. But anyway, like, you know, just uh, experimenting with uh, getting all of the harmonica involved in that yeah. instead of just primarily the middle octave. The easy octave. <laughs> yeah. So, Matt, we expect you're going to release a solo harmonica album of Caprices. Oh, no. Because <laughs> I... Like a Paganini thing, yeah. <laughs> that was, no, I'm not like... I'm not that good. I get, I'm just I'm just having fun. That's all I'm doing. Yeah, and, and, and it's a good way to practice because it's a good way to think. Like, hey, like, imagine going up. Like, right there, I went up and then down. So I'm going up on one and down on the other. But there's a million options. I could go... Right. So, like, you know, that guys, it's just, it's just endless. It's endless. Right. It's endless. <laughs> and it sounds great as well. You know, throwing that in, like you say, that on a song like that, it just, it sounds fantastic. Yeah. And a nice variety than the usual, you know, harmonica sounds. Right. There's so much to work on. Yeah. Yeah. It's endless. Yeah. I never, yeah. It's endless. I'm never not inspired. Mm. I'm never, I'm never in a place where I'm like, Oh, like, what do I need to do next? Or like, you know, or, or I'm never in a place where I'm satisfied with what I'm doing ever. I'm always searching always, always, always. Once again, thanks to Zydel for sponsoring the podcast. Be sure to check out their great range of harmonicas and products at www.zydel1847.com or on Facebook or Instagram at Zydel Harmonicas. That's the end of part one with the interview with Jason. Part two will be out in a week's time where we hear about Jason's career pulse new blood, his new band Bad Kind and other acts he has performed with as well as the usual gear section. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. If you haven't heard much of Jason before, first of all, where the hell have you been? Then please check out the Spotify playlist where you can hear most of the tracks that have been used in this episode. And be sure to tip Jason. The link is on the podcast page. Now let's see if Jason plays out with the song Ode to Billy Joe" from the City Country City album. <laughs>